Welcome to Howden's new podcast, Fortune Favours the Brave. We all take risks in our everyday life and business is no different. In this podcast, we're speaking to the experts about a topical challenge or issue and what business leaders can do to overcome it. In this mini-series, Chris Davies is going to be looking at the British Steel Pensions redress and what that means for financial advisors moving forward. Welcome everybody to Fortune Favours the Brave podcast. My name's Chris Davies. I'm Executive Director at Howden. And for those of you that don't know me, I'm responsible for the Financial and Risk Advisor team here. This is the first of a three-part series where we're going to discuss the aptly titled Consultation Paper 22.6, Consumer Redress Scheme for Unsuitable Advice to Transfer Out of the British Steel Pension Scheme. I think I couldn't have picked a worse title to start the podcast series, but here we go. Today, we're going to discuss those topics with two colleagues, Rob Morris, who's a partner at RPC. For those of you that aren't aware of RPC, RPC are a leading law firm and they particularly help advisors with regulatory matters. And I'm also joined by Paul Freeman, Senior Underwriter at Liberty Specialty Markets. And Paul's a long-term supporter of the financial advice market and has underwritten financial advisors for almost two decades. Gents, firstly, thank you very much for coming in today and uh, giving up your time to help us record this podcast. Do you want to just say a little bit more about yourselves? Rob, do you want to go first? Sure. So, um, as you say, I'm a partner at RPC, and my team specialises in predominantly defending claims against different financial professionals, which can include accountants and auditors, insolvency practitioners, actuaries, and of course also financial advisors. And that does obviously tend to come round to regulatory issues when you're dealing with FCA-regulated entities. And in actual fact, relevant for today's discussion, Uh, I started my career 20 years ago dealing with the original pension review. Uh, So we seem to have come back round full circle. No lessons seem to have been learned in the last 20 years. And we're effectively facing exactly the same problem now that we faced back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Mildly depressing. A little depressing. Okay, well, we'll try and cheer things up and we'll, uh, we'll get Paul to uh, share his experience of the, uh, and the legacy. I think you were chatting earlier about the legacy of the first pensions review. Well, yeah, that probably won't cheer many people up. But the legacy of the first pension review obviously was the, the withdrawal from the market of most of the PI insurers that was insuring IFAs at the time. As you said, I'm a I'm senior underwriter Liberty. I've been insuring IFAs since 2004, but I've been... Like Rob, my first introduction was also in the pension review where I was broken the claims whilst at an ex-Howden uh, office of PYV. Um, and it is depressing that we are still back in talking about this again. That is the most depressing part of this. Well, I think the good news is we've got the right people in the room to chat about it. So there's a lot of experience, a lot of, lot of, lot of knowledge, I think, and, and the different angles. I think if we then go on to uh, just a, sort of a little bit of a, an icebreaker, Paul, could you... Uh, can you tell us about a risk that you've taken recently that's paid off? No, I genuinely can't. <laughs> Other than insuring IFAs, no, I can't. Well, good. Well, it's good that that's paid. That's good. I'm glad that's paid off anyway. So that's a good thing. So, uh, so that's kind of everyday, everyday yacht. I reckon you took a risk going to the Lloyd Sevens and then immediately flying out to Spain for a weekend's golfing. Well, yeah, that one did pay off. I made it to Spain and I've made it back for the podcast. So, yes. Good. Excellent. And, uh, and Rob, what about you? Well, I recently was in uh, Snowdonia in North Wales on a holiday with my family and I decided to climb a ridge there, the Glidders group of mountains that are quite uh, 
quite rocky with some sharp ridges. So I climbed up one of the ridges there and realized about halfway up that it was slightly more precarious than I'd originally anticipated. Um, but I made it up and down again, uh, and it was good fun. Well, it's good to see you in one piece. So that's, that's excellent. And thanks very much for making the effort to come in this morning. Just for, for those listening, uh, I don't want you to necessarily feel that we're going to get too drawn into the British Steel case in itself, but we are going to talk about several aspects of the review. And in particular, uh, these, the, how it could potentially go forward into reviews across other types of business in the future. So we'll try and unpack that a little bit. Uh, we'll also talk about how uh, professional indemnity insurance works. There's some technicalities I'd like to chat to, to the guys about there. So, um, so maybe if we, if we just start with the review itself, the Section 404 review, do you think that this is a natural conclusion to the investigation that the regulator has been conducting or do do we feel that they've just run out of options? Rob, do you, what, what, what would you take me there? Yes, yeah, so I think that uh, the FCA has somewhat been backed into a corner in proposing this 404 review. I think that they've already done a huge amount of work to investigate what went on with British Steel and the advice that was given to the ex-members of the British Steel scheme. They have investigated all the firms. Well, they have made inquiries of all the firms that gave advice to British Steel members. They have launched investigations into a lot of those firms and certainly all of the firms that gave a large volume of advice. They have imposed past business reviews on a lot of those higher risk firms. They have appointed skilled person reviews for many of them as well. They've also held several meetings in Wales and in Scunthorpe, and they've encouraged people, ex-members, to consider carefully the advice they received. They've given them lots of information about red flags that might suggest that the advice they received was inappropriate. They've written open letters. Uh, They've done all kinds of things, basically, to try to ensure that any poor advice genuinely bad advice has been dealt with and that those effective have can, or at least can receive compensation. I think what's happened though is it's become highly politicised and I think the government has since put a vast amount of pressure on the FCA perhaps because of the perceived lack of uptake from the ex-members in making complaints and The government, or individual MPs at least, have put so much pressure on the FCA to do something more that the FCA has felt as though they had no option but to introduce this 404 scheme. And I think that, in truth, I have no inside information on this, but my suspicion is the FCA didn't really want to impose a Section 404 scheme, which is why it had gone down the route of carrying out individual investigations into individual firms uh, but I think in the end they felt they had no further option. I think a lot of people feel that don't they I think I think that's quite quite a, a common view from people that I talk to who've given this some thought. Paul do you do you have a view why people haven't come forward in as many numbers as the regulator perhaps wants or perhaps the politicians want you know whichever angle the pressure sort of coming from? Yes there's there's a number of high-profile firms that have failed, and so everything's at the FSCS already. Um, so 
active wealth is the one that everybody will name because that was the first one that went out there. And genuinely, that looked like that was poor advice. But the good good firms that are remaining now, they've, they've got a regular relationship with their clients. They're constantly talking to them. They're constantly letting them know how the funds go. The advice process, they were involved with all the way through it. They might just be happy with the advice that they've received. They know what risks they've taken. They understand that they've taken a risk. The guaranteed income wasn't from them. The flexibility that they've got was for them. And they're genuinely not wanting to make a complaint. If you ask somebody four or five times to complain and they don't, there is a little bit of an inference that maybe they don't want maybe to. Maybe they don't actually want to in the first place, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think, I mean, it's how far down the line do we go trying to trying to you know get a complaint or, or any sort of allegation to come out of a client. I suppose the regulator, in fairness, they might say, well, if you have that tight relationship, maybe there's some kind of blockage there that actually that you know the client's not totally content to kind of come past that relationship. Do you think do you think that might hold people back in this circumstance? Potentially. But one of the things with the four oh four, making it an opt out as opposed to an opt in process, if you make it an opt in under a prescribed way of right into the client so that you can't influence that, then you let you let them make the choice. Whereas at the moment, they've got to be opting out actively, which is an entirely different, it's subtle, but it's very different. Well, that's probably a good point to come on to that because I think that's something we should we should look at in a bit more detail. I know that um, although I've been uh, um, uh, on the IFA side of the market for the last, uh, well, nearly 30 years, so it's kind of gone quite back a bit. I, and I, I've been a buyer of professional demonstrations for probably 25 years. And I understood the sort of um, the, the so-called claims made policy, I think, certainly now working with Howden over the last 18 months, I've got to know that and understand that a lot, you know, in a lot more detail. And I think in this instance, I'd like to kind of draw out that point that you've made there, uh, Paul, about the opt-in, opt-out versus the claims made policy. Because I think my, if I just give my general understanding is that most uh, professional indemnity policies are set up to respond to a claim. It works on the basis of the idea that there's a claim is going to be made and come forward in the first instance, and then there's an investigation into that claim, and then if the if that's upheld, then a payment gets made. So, Rob, could you maybe take some of the nuances out of that in terms of the opt-in and the opt-out, and why and how possibly um, claims made policies might or might not respond to the opt-out basis, which is the current uh, proposed format of the review? Yeah, of course. So... Um, it's perhaps worth just stepping back and looking at the different types of insurance cover that's available. Uh, and you rightly say that professional indemnity insurance is, I would say, exclusively written on a claims made basis. But that's not true of all insurance policies. So some insurance, particularly, for example, employers liability or public liability insurance, maybe even your own house insurance, will respond on what's referred to as an event occurring basis. So, for example, if somebody trips up outside your offices and injures themselves and wants to make a claim and assert that you're liable for their injury, the policy that will respond to that is likely to be the policy that was in place when the person tripped up. Now, of course, they may not actually make a claim for a number of years after that, but the policy that responds is when the event occurs. But PI insurance does not work on that basis. As with a lot of liability insurance, it works on a claims-made basis. So the policy that responds is the policy that's in force when the individual actually makes a claim against the insured firm. 
So in this context, the policy will respond if, for example, an advisor's client is unhappy with an investment and they actually assert a claim against the advisor firm. And that's when the policy will respond. And the problem with an opt-out process is that you have the possibility there that a firm will have to assess the suitability of the advice it gave to a particular client, determine whether that advice was suitable or not. If it was unsuitable, carry out a redress calculation to determine whether the client suffered a loss or not, and then ultimately offer redress to that client, all without the client ever actually participating in that process and making a claim. And if that were to happen, then I imagine that the vast majority of PI policies, if not all of them, simply wouldn't respond because the insured firm would in effect be volunteering to make a payment to somebody who hasn't even made a claim against them. Yeah, and that's, that's considerable, isn't it? Because we forget that insurance policies are legal documents, aren't they? They're legal contracts and they respond in a, in a legal way. And the FCA collectively knows this, but unfortunately, we were talking earlier about not learning lessons from the pension review. Well, uh, you might say that here the FCA is arguably not learning lessons from it the last time it used its Section 404 powers. It's only done it once before, and that was with Arch Crew. And with Arch Crew, when they consulted on that scheme, they did not originally proposed to use an opt-in process. But the insurance market and others explained the difficulties with that and how that would likely result in PI policies not responding. And the FCA changed how the Arch Crew Redress Scheme would work, and they did use an opt-in process. So one would hope that they will follow a similar course here. The only concern that I would raise is that there is obviously this particular concern that the FCA has partly imposed on it by the political pressure it's under that they've already tried to effectively encourage people to complain and they perceive that not enough people have responded to that. And in the consultation paper, that's their explanation as to why they want to use an opt-out scheme in this case. And it, it feels, doesn't it, as though there's a sort of impasse between these two pieces that, as you say, Paul, early on, there doesn't seem to be enough um, c- um, people from the British Steel Scheme who are transferred out coming forward with claims. Yet this, the, the, it, it might be something that's replicated on the opt-in basis and therefore it seems to become favoured for the opt-out, whereby everybody's in unless they specifically say otherwise. I mean, you obviously will have will have had to experience of the arch crew situation that uh, that uh, Rob has mentioned there. Do you do you feel that because it, it is discussed, isn't it, in the consultation paper? Both options are discussed in the in the paper, so they they're aware of what we've just talked about. But yet, seemingly, they're, they're certainly their most favoured option, as described, is the is the opt out basis. Do you do you feel they've learned lessons from the past? No, not really. Um, on the original pension review, there was a a case that went to court, uh, Rothschild versus Collier, and the claims made nature of the policy and the claims operating clauses of the policies was discussed at length with, by the judge in that judgment. 
they ignored that in the original arts crew consultation. And then after, as Rob said, after we spoke to them, um, and I was part of those discussions as well, they altered that premise. In fairness, I am expecting that part of the consultation to alter because if you're sitting there saying you're putting a consumer scheme together to protect the consumer and the main, in fairness, the, the main way that they're going to be getting their redress is going to be from the PI community. If you're then saying, well, by doing it this way, the PI community might not respond to that, it won't be in the consumer's interest. So I am expecting that aspect to change. Because I think with that, with that point, it does seem unusual that they've mentioned the fact that some policies might not respond. I think it also talks about some policies have exclusions about Section 404 reviews anyway, but yet they've, they've apportioned some of the, you know, quite a large portion of the redress bill, haven't they, 19.4 million, to the professional indemnity insurers. Yeah. So it seems an unusual thing to have, to have counted them in for the, for the calculation on how the redress might be split. And then at the same time, we, we completely exclude them. Exclude them on the policy terms. Yeah, very interesting point. I think, guys, that's a good place to pause for this first episode of the podcast. And uh, let's pick it back up again in episode two. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fortune Favours the Brave from Howden. To hear more episodes and subscribe to our channel, search Fortune Favours the Brave on your favourite podcast app.